0: The Jewish Trauma Network provides education, guidance, and inspiration to individuals and families suffering from trauma to help them create a better life of connection and self actualization. I'm your host, Dr. Yosef Tropper, and my greatest wish is to bring calmness, hope, and success to your life. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this episode is about how to detect and address financial abuse. I have with me Ed Combs, and I'm going to read some of his credentials because I think they're really important MBA, MA, MS. LMFT. Keep that in mind. That's the uh, therapeutic part. CFP, CFT-I. That's the financial part, which uh, is why I'm so honored to have Ed here with us today. Let me just read his bio. Ed helps couples fulfill their happily ever after love and money story. It's no secret that couples struggle to connect on their finances. It doesn't have to be this way with the right type of help. Bringing together the worlds of financial planning, couples therapy, and financial therapy, Ed guides couples in becoming the heroes of their own love and money story. Thank you so much and welcome, Ed.
1: Thank you so much, Joseph. I'm so happy to be here and to have this important
0: conversation with you. So I want to just dive right into it, if you're okay. Yeah. Um, and just ask you, in my work with couples, I always see what Dave Ramsey, the financial expert, always says, that whenever a couple is having struggles, they often are having financial struggles as well. And they're not communicating. They're probably not communicating well about money. Um I just wanna know, why is it so hard to find therapists who specialize both in the couples part and the financial part? It's literally an anomaly to find somebody that could do both, like, why is that?
1: Yeah, I think there's probably a couple reasons for it. I'll go with probably one of the most practical is when you look at the educational system that a therapist goes through and a financial planner goes through, if you go through an undergrad in psych, there are usually no business courses. And then if you get a master's degree in therapy, there are no courses in business or money or economics or anything. And so they they have no educational familiarity with money and with the economic system and how those things structure. All they have is their own lived experience. And oftentimes those lived experiences have some pretty painful uh, thorns to it, right? So that makes them anxious about talking about money. Now, on the other side, when you look at, business folks and financial planner types, sometimes they have an undergrad in psych, but oftentimes they don't have a graduate degree in therapy. And they have lots of courses in accounting and corporate finance and business management and personal finance, but they don't really understand how humans work. They don't go, get a deep knowledge in that. And so there's this kind of gap in the educational systems where there's not really a program that brings those two worlds together. And that's, you, know, you mentioned the CFT level one, that's the certified financial therapist. The organization the financial therapy association recognizes this and, and it's a community of both academics or researchers in the field of financial planning and therapy as well as practitioners in both fields all coming together and saying let's, let's close that gap let's bring these two bodies of knowledge together that have a lot of value
0: awesome that's amazing and just as a uh, background the way i met ed was about two years ago there was a Jewish agency that was working a lot with couples and financial issues. And they reached out to me saying, we need a training that's going to be focused on the Orthodox Jewish community and teaching us all about financial psychology, so to speak. And I found Ed online because he has a great book, which is going to be in the show notes, but the book is called The Healthy Love and Money Way, How the Four Attachment Styles Impact Your Financial Wellbeing. And stay tuned. We're going to hopefully go through some of the basic gists of that. It's an amazing book. And I found that a lot of Therapists that deal with financial stuff didn't really have the same financial background. And a lot of people that had a financial background, exactly what Ed just said, didn't have the understanding of people, which is well put. And so when I reached out to Ed, we had a conversation about faith based counseling and understanding the Jewish uh, psychology of just expensive lifestyles, tuitions, dietary restrictions, and all those things. Ed really rocked out an amazing uh, program, which I encourage you to check out, if, especially if you're a therapist working with clients. It's called Healthy Love and Money Practical Financial Therapy. And that's on our website, corewellcu.com. You could take a look and just search for Ed Combs, and you'll see it there. It's really, it's an amazing deep dive of six hours, uh, I believe, six hours of really solid material that, of course, we'll touch on some of that today. And also we'll focus on some of the abuse part. So what I wanted to dive into uh, with you, Ed, is this idea of what you talked about, the family financial history. Can you tell us more about like that impact
1: yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've come to appreciate, and it's it was it's been a little bit of a hard journey to, to take this in, but there's this deeper truth that our families live through complex um, experiences at many different levels, and it shapes their relationship with money and money expectations. And as we're growing up as children, we're just absorbing whatever our family and our culture is teaching us, and we're not able to really discriminate between any of it. So we just kind of take it on as truth. And then many of us will grow and mature and maybe start to question parts of that. But it's getting to a deep enough level of understanding what's going on in our family financial history and how that was shaping financial expectations and lessons that starts to move us to a greater sense of financial flexibility and freedom from my perspective. A lot of times people will say, I don't know why I did that. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about that and see what might be some of the underlying meanings or motives behind why you're doing that or not doing it. So whether it's around spending money or addressing taxes or engaging in an expensive family religious ritual, the the list goes on, but there's uh, so many patterns that are just conditioned into us that we want to just start to open that up more reflectively.
0: I I would love to hear more examples from you just on what type of things kids pick up when they're a child. I know that when I was a kid, I, I grew up in a very religious Jewish home and I'm very grateful to my parents. And there was like this aura of, we don't talk about money. It's just, we just don't talk about it. And I'm sure that's, and there's a healthy part where that's coming from. And I'm not criticizing my parents. I think in some families, we don't talk about money because it's not there. <laughs> so we don't want to scare people. Is there like a balance of how families should operate? I think it's
1: really an interesting place of subtlety and, and nuance, because I don't think that there's one specific place where there's an exact or right, right amount of financial information to, to flow through from one generation to the next i like to think about it as that there's probably a range or a zone that's probably healthy and adaptive. And I think that you are highlighting something really important is if you don't have the money, that can feel scary. And most adults want to protect their kids from feeling scared and overwhelmed, but it leaves parents stuck in this, like, how do we talk about this? How do we name it? And so one of the things that I often try to do is coach parents to say, if you're struggling with a, an absence of resources, is to acknowledge and say things are financially tough in more of a matter of fact way, but also to communicate to the children, this is an adult problem or responsibility to manage. It's not the kids because kids will sometimes inappropriately take on responsibility or assign fault to themselves for something that is not theirs to take on. And so part of the parent's responsibility is to also help the child recognize that there is something challenging and that mom and dad are trying to do the best they can to sort through it. And that's yeah. easier said than than done, but that's the concept.
0: You know so, some of the things I see in the religious community is kids will come in and there are certain holiday seasons, for example, right now we're in the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur New Year kind of right, season right, and right. there's there's a decent amount of expenses but uh, Sukkot, Sukkot and uh, Passover are the two times a year where you know there's just so many obligations on families to buy lots of food. There's lots of expensive things, ritual things. For example, we have the arbaminum, Minim, the, the four items that are used, which are you know, some, they'll put you out a good 50 to $200, depending on what you want to spend. And then you have all the food and all the guests. And on Passover, you have the matzah and all the extra food that you buy. It could be hundreds or even thousands of dollars for some families. And I just wonder what your experience is and how that impacts children when they're growing up and they're hearing messages from their parents. I pay 10000 or $15,000 for your tuition. What a waste. Or this holiday is so expensive, we don't have any money, or no, we can't afford those shoes that everyone else has because we're, go- we're going through a holiday season and we're barely making a buy. How does that influence someone just from a psychological and financial perspective?
1: It's really interesting. I think there's sometimes there's a range of responses to how children adapt to those kind of messages. I've worked with a number of clients where they end up building a lot of resentment towards the religion of origin, and they'll reject the religion because they feel like the religion is the source of the financial problem. You know, I have kids. For some kids, they'll go along to get along, so to speak. They'll be okay, yeah, this is what it is, and we'll just navigate with it. And then I think that there's probably another group that's just, they just recreate it, and they just really stay in it. Like, they they almost double down on that whole process. And so I think that there's probably another way where trying to find that healthy balance of how do we honor our religious tradition and convictions, while also finding some sense of balance in our own financial well-being. and. This is, when I look across the world religions, most religious groups have varying degrees of adherence expectations from very devout, fundamentalist, extreme to very loose observance and connection. right? Yeah. And I'm not here to say one is right or wrong, but is being able to be reflective about my religious convictions do have a relationship on how much pressure I feel to maintain the holidays and how much flexibility i feel like i have and this is probably my practicing lens is one of uh, i'm always shooting for flexibility i'm trying to move between all or nothing and i realize that may not sit well for everyone that's listening but that's the lens that i bring to the table
0: i think the word balance and flexibility is definitely good and again i would say that the majority of the orthodox community that i work with there isn't this negative vibe of this is so expensive and it's not worth it maybe some of our grandparents when they came to america they had to work on Saturday, or they would lose their job. And there was a lot of negativity of well, we have a choice. We could either be religious and keep Sabbath according to the strict observance, or we could give it up. And I, I think that that created another generation of people that either watched their parents sacrifice for it, and therefore said, "I also want that," and built that as their tradition. Or you have people that just said, "Forget it. I don't need this." And that's exactly what I think you're bringing out. A lot of that financial, emotional part becomes part of their psyche and how they look at religion.
1: Yeah. I and mean, I think that's what's so challenging is that it's, I don't know of a particular predictive path where I could say in this family, I'm going to look at child A, B, and C and say, this child is going to go that way. This child is going to go that way. And this. Right. we all make our conjectures, but it's yeah. very hard to know from infancy. Oh, this one little baby, six month old is going to go this way with. It, yeah. It makes develops sense. over time. And I think this is from a family systems perspective, each child is trying to find their place in the family and kind of their own identity. And so sometimes they'll take opposite positions just to develop their own sense of self.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Now I I know that the topic of your book is all about going through the attachment styles and the history, and I don't want to put you on the spot and have you, I don't want to take away from the book because it's definitely worth the read and the training goes into it at length, but is there just a way for you to summarize just some of the attachment styles and how that manifests in financial matters?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think attachment theory grew out of the study of human relatedness and bondedness, and really primarily around mother-infant bonding. And it's been around for about eighty years now, so it's a pretty well established lens and understanding of folks. And generally, there's four categories that people get grouped into: secure, anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Most people, when they hear those words, they almost immediately like, "Yeah, I think I'm anxious, or I think I'm avoidant, or I think I'm secure." So for today's conversation, we'll just say, just go with your intuition. But this is really about how do you experience relationships? And here's how I think it maps onto our patterns with money. If you feel relationally secure, what that means is I generally feel okay with myself and I generally feel okay with the other person. So now if I need to make a financial decision and I know it might be a little disagreeable or my partner might have a different perspective on it, But if i feel secure in the relationship i can go to my partner and trust that we'll work through and find a commonly a common outcome that works for both of us it might feel uncomfortable to have the conversation but we're comfortable enough to go through it a great example i was working with a couple very recently he has an avoidant attachment she has an anxious attachment and he wanted to go to a concert did he tell his wife that he wanted to go to a concert no he's avoidance avoidance he just bought the tickets and then told her later and what happened she it was a somewhat about the money because they're also in a financial financially challenging place but it's also for her another source of rejection you didn't want me to come with you you wanted to just go with your friends and so her anxious attachment set the stage and this so this event had relational history to it but as we're working through it it's continuing to remind them you have these relational ways of of working with it and his avoidance shutting down caused him to not feel secure talking to his partner. His partner's way of responding to his request precipitated. So it's a cycle. And
0: that's very well illustrated. The fact is most couples share finances or definitely share financial responsibilities. So what ends up happening is that you're stuck in the same boat with this person, but then when each person is reacting based on their attachment, so I'm avoidant, Therefore, I don't have to communicate. I could just do on my own and what I'm doing makes sense. So I don't need to justify it. And I'm anxious, which means that I'm constantly thinking about is our relationship really, are we connected or are, are we communicating? Um, therefore, I'm looking for ways to be able to connect and hear from you and have that conversation. Okay. The anxious person wants to talk about the finances so, a lot of times. And the avoidant yeah. person doesn't want to deal with them.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a big pattern, right? And the, the avoidant one is not very good at relational reassuring. And the the anxious one is usually not very good at expressing the need for relational reassurance. It comes across as attacking, blaming, feeling like you're not including me. And, and it can precipitate in the long run is your future retirement outcome. If you don't get on the same page, I, I see... A number of anxious partners over shopping to compulsively shopping and there's a couple of factors to that there's a retaliation against their partner mm-hmm. there's a just meeting their own need for relationship and connection and because they're not getting that in their intimate relationship they go and shop and so oftentimes you know the issue is not to get them to stop shopping it's to help them become more connected and to help a couple become more connected
0: so in, in that example where you know a lot of times he has things that he wants and he's not expressing it because he's a he's avoidant and she is feeling like maybe this relationship isn't as connected as it needs to be and she's not expressing that properly to to invite him so how would you fix that how would you is it just an awareness thing is there a practice is there financial <laughs> things we need to do like how do we deal with that
1: yeah i wish that there was i laugh a little bit and it and sorry I don't, I don't want anyone to feel bad at hearing my laughter because. It, I wish that it was a really simple one intervention and we fix this and it's all done. But when we understand the nature of how our attachment patterns get held into our mind, brain, and nervous system, we start to realize that we can't just have one activity or one intervention to change these very deep internalized patterns of seeing ourselves and seeing others. And so it's usually over a course of time and multiple interventions and repetition that we Build or restructure the ability to be in relationship and to feel secure. So, right, one of the one activity of many things that I do oftentimes is slowly start to get the couple comfortable actually turning and looking at each other. Because what I watch happen a lot of times is that they're talking and they're looking up in their head or looking off somewhere else or they're looking down, they don't even see the other person. They're not even in awareness of the other person. And so Dr. Stan Tacken's done a lot of work with attachment and couples and yeah. You know, he talks about the difference between one-person systems and two-person systems. And, and an anxious or an avoidant is a one-person system. A securely attached person has two people in mind, myself and the other person, right? You and I don't know your attachment. Self. And in a professional context, it can soften some, but we're both being attentive to each other. We're taking turns. We're give and take. But that's a way of being with
0: each other securely. Right. Like many therapists, my attachment style—I call it secure anxious. I always like to give that credit for probably seventy-five percent or more, depending on the day. But has that anxious side. So you know, I mean that we're in the caregiving field because we care about people and we're anxious. And that caregiving anxiety comes out of wanting to make everybody feel
1: comfortable, right? And so we had a role in the families of trying to alleviate the relational discord or disconnection, or try to help people see each other's perspective. And that there's a good part to that, but sometimes we can get so wrapped up in our own anxiety about trying to make it okay that it ends up hurting us more than it helps the other folks
0: said thank you. I want to segue into kind of the main aspect that I've been focusing on lately which is trauma I know before we started we were talking about the word financial abuse it was very um, jarring but we want to get people's attention is there we wanted to divide that into maybe different levels is there financial misuse? financial manipulation, financial reactivity, and then we're then finally this word financial abuse that people like to use that word a lot. And it's a very dangerous word. Anything that has the word abuse in it, it has clinical connotations and we take that seriously. But is there like a spectrum of how that operates?
1: Yeah, I think you actually laid it out pretty well Is there's a kind of a continuum of abusive behavior. And there's also, so even in saying that, I want to pull that back and say, at some point
0: is... Oh, sorry, let
1: me you know,
0: how take your time because we're, we're trying not to use word abuse when somebody is just kind of being reactive or maybe spending inappropriately. There's lots of things that come before the word abuse.
1: Yeah. So let's go, let's try to make it practical, right? Is a spouse is overspending. Now, depending on the degree and amount of overspending and transparency will determine how abusive it is.
0: Okay, so let, let's get that. Let's that, get that because I think that's very relevant. The degree—that's one aspect of it. Transparency means: do I tell you or not? And what, okay. Was there any other criteria? And the frequency. The frequency that makes so sense. If
1: let's just say very simple, I buy a, a Coke and a candy bar at the grocery store every time I go, along with all the family groceries. And but my wife never sees the Coke and the candy bar. Is that that's financial good. abuse? Definitely not. No, I don't think so. But is there a, a kind of a gap in transparency about what I'm spending the household money on?
0: Yes. Is it Plenty. going to right. Is it going to materially impact the course of our life together? Probably not. And I, I also think it's reasonable. I have a policy in my house. Whoever goes shopping, that's you make the call. So I don't when you come home, I'm not going to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you bought that. It's not look at that price. Because you know what we need. I know what we need. And yeah, you're right. It wasn't on sale this week, or you had to buy a more expensive brand. But it's not fair for me to start nitpicking. Obviously, if you come home and there's 20 extra things and there's a 25% increase in in what our normal budget is, then just what is that? We could have a conversation. But I think we have to be reasonable also when people go shopping. So let's take so
1: right. I think that's healthy practice, right? And there's some built-in flexibility. If we take it up the notch, moving towards more of an abusive pattern. I work with a number of business owning clients and the business owning person or sales professional often has to go wine and dine clients and go on fancier trips. And much of that spending nice meals, wine, food is covered by the company expense as part of doing business. What they're living on and spending in that context may not be what their family life is actually able to support. Right. But they come home and they talk about, oh, I had this lavish meal and this nice wine, whatever have you. Meanwhile, the stay-at-home spouse is like fixed cheap mac and cheese for the kids three nights in a row and just was happy to get the kids in bed. And then they go out with their friends and spend 18 bucks on a pizza with a friend. And the the, per- the partner that's just been on the nice business trip then flashes. I can't believe you just spent $18 on Like the emotional reaction and the dollar amount don't match, especially in light of the fact that you've just talked about being on this really nice business trip. So that creates really some more significant relational rupture because you're missing a sense of equality in the relationship and experience, and you're not acknowledging and honoring that difference. So I think that becomes more problematic. Now, if we go even further into the extremes is I'm a financial planner also. If we're not talking openly with our spouse about our long-term retirement planning and investment strategies and what's happening there, a lot of people will be like, that's fine long as things are going well. The challenge is things don't always go well. And once they stop going well, then we get stuck with shame and secrecy. How do we talk to? And so this is playing gender stereotypes so it's not universal but a lot of women historically have been disengaged in knowing about the long-term finances of the plan and the husband either dies or they get divorced and then she's blown away i thought we were okay so you said we were okay and so if you're telling your partner we're okay for the long run and you're not i think that is a form of
0: financial abuse interesting so I, I have a couple of scenarios. I because you're I'm setting. Going. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so uh, because
1: our financial security is built over time. And yeah. if you run 10, 20 years down the road, the ability to recover that time to build financial security is gone.
0: That makes sense. And so, so
1: that's a massive loss.
0: Yeah. yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So just in broad guideline, how often would you say healthy couples have a conversation about finances?
1: Oh, that's a oh, I love that question. I think that healthy couples are having very regular daily, if not multiple times without a week. They're just they talk openly about the decisions that they've made, the things that they've spent money on, the things that maybe they didn't spend money on, but they thought about spending money on. They may be free to talk about a dream that they have. Or something in the future. So there's just a wide range of very, from practical to more uh, aspirational and everything. Gotcha. And it can just come up and it's not threatening to either person in a really healthy relationship. They can just see it for what it is and in the context that it's being shared.
0: Gotcha. Would it be fair to say that healthy couples spend X amount of time per week or per month, just going through finances back and forth. And obviously you and I both understand that if there's a couple where they're both happy and they have a once a year conversation and that works for them, that's good. And if there's a couple that have a daily conversation and one of them is not happy. We have to do something about that. Just like a normal parameter of what's the range. Like how long do normal couples spend a month talking about finances?
1: Uh, I don't know that I've ever quite thought through that fully. So if I narrow it down in a week's time, let's call it a couple of hours. Okay. and that so might okay. Be A five minute thing here, a 10 minute thing here. And, and I think what, people don't realize is how often they're
0: talking about money without talking about money. I appreciate you saying that. When you said a couple of hours, I was like, whoa, that's a lot. Then I realized, no, there's a lot of conversations that take place about, are we doing this extra thing? Are we upgrading this? Are we taking that trip? There is a lot of financial talk that goes on.
1: There's a lot of real-time decision-making. Do we stay home tonight or do we go out to dinner? That is Part true. of the reason for that is because do we want to spend the 50, 60, 100, whatever that is for your family? Or do we want to use the groceries we have at home? Yeah. And sometimes you think sometimes that cost is top of mind. Sometimes it's more in the background. Yeah. So So you have those types of conversations. Oh, it's back to school season. Okay. We got to pay for the kid's uniform or I'm going to sign the kids up for this sport. Or my wife and I, we had an opportunity for our son to fly, to go to Barcelona with his competitive soccer. And so that had, that was a bigger, longer multi-part conversation and but that took time to just talk through and figure out what does that mean to you what does that mean to me what is, what does that actually mean for our finances can we support right. this and so i think healthy couples are open to have if you will three types of conversations i can't do my fingers apparently three types of conversations yeah ad hoc which means just in the flow of life semi planned semi structured meaning once a week once a month we sit down and review the state of where we're at and then strategic which is we're really looking at where are we at and where are we going long run. And having all three of those types of conversations are, I think, what healthy vital couples are able to do.
0: I appreciate that. A couple of quick scenarios I wrote down, and this is like a composite of clients I've worked with over the years. It's not anybody specific, although I know people that I'm working with currently are going to say, "Oh, you're talking about me or (laughs) send it to their spouse. I'm really not. So let's say I have a scenario where this is just made up, but I have a guy that he makes significantly more than his wife. Yeah. Now, how do you define that? Because she's a part stay-at-home mom. So I'm not really sure how you put money on that. But in his words, the reason that every paycheck comes in, he'll buy himself a $500 set of new golf clubs, or he'll go out and he'll spend lots of money at a bar or whatever. And and we're not talking about inappropriate things according to either of them. It's just the, fin- just the financial part of it. And he says, I make more than you. So I have a right to spend more than you. What do you do with that?
1: Oh, how much time do you have?
0: <laughs> uh, on one foot, I, yeah. No, I think there's.
1: I put that in the category of financial entitlement. What are what am I entitled to? Because that's a good word,
0: entitlement. Life?
1: And and entitlement can have a bad rap, but I think that there's a healthy side to self-entitlement. I want people to feel like they have a right to spend the money that they're earning. What I don't want is there to be a sense of inequality or unfairness. Yeah, and there are people that have researched the mathematical value of a stay-at-home partner or partial stay-at-home partner and the opportunity cost and it's it doesn't always even this is where it gets tricky because if you have a person that makes a million dollars a year like that it gets the math gets harder but i think what you the bigger kind of question um i'll address if that's your position what does that feel like for your partner to hear that and that's a reflective question for you to consider second question is but then again, back to your family financial history, how is your family financial history setting you up for that being your expectation? How is maybe your, the culture also setting that up for you? Because there can be cultural influences that say men have a greater right to the household finances or control over. It. There can be other cultural narratives that say women do. And, and so on. It, it can go either way depending on the, the nuances of your cultural context, but also your lived family experience. And it might be that you felt like you were very deprived as a child. And part of the reason why you work so hard to make all this money is so that you can have the toys or the things that you didn't have. That's So now it's less about your entitlement and being powered over your spouse. And it's more about your own unmet needs from childhood.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's that's the attachment part that you bring so much insight to. And I know some people think that it's being Freudian or whatever, which I don't have a problem with that either, if it is, but it, it really is. It really translates very clearly, especially if you do this all day and you spend time that there's a lot, exactly what you said, just having a compassionate partner who understands oh, that's where you're coming from. For example, like with every couple I work with, I always come up with, if there's any financial issues, like what's the number that makes sense based on both your incomes and expectations that neither person should spend that money without telling them. And some couples it's $50 because they're so tight. And some couples it's 500 and some couples, they could have discretionary funds of thousands and let's do whatever you want with it. But I think that's an important conversation. And I also asked them, like, what's financial security to each of you? I remember I worked with one couple and the guy told me, we're not living paycheck to paycheck. I'm financially secure. And his wife's view was we need at least a million dollars in the bank, period. They had 100, 100K. And just, I will never feel safe until I have that. And exactly what you said, once we explore the attachment things, for him is he never had any money to spend. And the fact that he's being, he felt his wife was being tight. That didn't work and the fact that she grew up in a home where there was no money either but her reaction to it was like i'm not going to be that way
1: and i love that you highlight that point because that's also part of where couples get so confused as, wait but we both grew up with lack right but one of us is grateful to just be having a stable salary job and the other of us is thinking we're gonna have a million dollars cash sitting in the bank yeah and this is and i think that's part of that recognizing Same stimulus or same types of stimulus can warrant almost polarized positions.
0: Different attachment styles and manifestations.
1: And I think trauma, the trauma lens has really helped me understand that trauma sends us down the continuum of polarization to holding one end of an extreme or the other. And so the more extreme you hold one position, the harder your partner is likely to dig into the other side.
0: That makes sense, too. Yeah. So
1: we... Um, from the treatment perspective, is we're wanting to work back towards this kind of gray middle space instead of this black or white. It's either this or it's that.
0: Yeah. And as couples sometimes get into fights or have distance and conflict in their marriage, it becomes even more difficult for them to agree on financials because in order to agree on financials, you have to be grounded. You have to be reasonable. You have to be amicable. And so this is one of the most touchy topics of all marriage. It's no wonder people are going to be fighting more. And so I just wonder, like, where do we actually factually speaking, I'm coming back to this original question, where do we draw the line? People come in and say, there's financial abuse, there's this abuse, there's emotional abuse, right? I, I, I believe that. I really believe that there are things like that exist. I just want to know, where do you draw the line? What are some of the characteristics that you would say, this is clearly financial abuse? If it's true what you're saying, obviously, it would have to be verified.
1: Oh, man, that's a good question.
0: Yeah, I told you I was going to be an example. I had yeah. a couple I worked with where she was just spending indiscriminately and she herself admitted that she just did not care about the budget. You work. It's not my problem. And I don't know what you're doing all day, but you should be making more money. And so what he did was he put a limit on the credit card and said, you have a thousand dollars a month on groceries and you have X amount because the more she said, I don't really care. Get your act together. I don't want to talk about finances. The more he said, we can't just live swiping. So, here's a budget. And if you want to sit down, we can resolve that. And it ended up with them being extremely dysregulated and extremely dysfunctional, but each one was claiming that they were being abused by the other.
1: And I think that's, that's most often the case is you're probably familiar with the Cartman drama triangle, right? Which is there's about three positions people will take the victim, the persecutor or the rescuer. Right. And a lot of couples will get stuck flip-flopping between being the victim and being the perpetrator. And Absolutely. neither partner sees them s- more often than that, most partners don't see themselves as the perpetrator. They just see themselves as the victim. Right. Now, sometimes partners will be so identified as being the persecutor or the perpetrator that they feel like, if that's how you're going to see me, then I guess I'm just going to live into that role. And so really to start to change that dynamic is building mutual responsibility for the relationship and mutual emotional growth and development for both of them this is why as a couples therapist i don't take a position as one person being the abuser and one person being as the victim they both have capacity to take both roles they both take both roles at different times and i'm fortunate that at least at this point and i may be missing something that i hope i'm not but Profound domestic violence crosses into some other really complex psychological stuff. So, in my sense, most of the couples I'm working with are not to that point of such extreme psychological distortion that they're truly pathological perpetrators.
0: Yeah. That they're well, gener- generally those people are not seeking help. They're seeking shelter from their spouse and seeking a protective order and divorce. They're not coming to Ed or or Joseph for uh, counseling.
1: Right. So that's why everything with a bit of a grain of salt and perspective, yeah. but right. And, and you said that dysregulated. One of the concepts I work with my couples a lot is, and this is drawing them right down to their nervous system and body is we all have a window of tolerance. I mean, the science behind this is called the polyvagal theory, but really it's about our autonomic nervous system that most people are familiar with fight flight. There's another part called freeze. It's connected to your autonomic nervous system. And when you get outside of your window of tolerance, you become a less rational person. You become more likely to become abusive, or the other side of abuse is neglectful, right? And neglect is a type of injuring the relationship. And neglect is an absence of doing something that would be reasonable or responsible. Like this wife is basically saying, I don't care. I'm not going to worry about it. It's not my man's responsibility. And that's. If you're saying that and you're in an intimate relationship that money is not my responsibility, that is a big symptom. That's a big warning sign because both adults are responsible for the financial outcome of their family. They, have different, they may have different roles to play, but they are both mutually responsible for the future outcome of their financial life together.
0: Amazing, amazing. I have two last questions for you and I really appreciate all this information. It's really helpful and I'm sure it's enlightening to people. So if you are in a relationship and you feel like there is some financial misuse or something dysfunctional going on or abuse or w- to whatever level, what are your next steps? What do you do?
1: Um, it's time to get professional help. This is not a problem. And this is not a, a slight or fault on you as a person, it's not a character defect. But you need help, restorative help with a trained professional that understands the cycles of abuse, of neglect, of emotional misattunement. And if they also understand money, all the better. But a, a good couples therapist can will be able to work at least the foundational pieces. And if you can get that part going, then you can bridge over. Amazing. So, professional help.
0: Awesome. That, that makes a lot of sense. And people shouldn't be embarrassed to reach out. This is definitely an important part of... Financial help. The uh, last thing is just resources. I, I'll tell you what I have right now, and I'm going to ask if you have any other things to add. We have your digital training with Core Wellness, which is Healthy Love and Money, Practical Financial Therapy, which I think is one of the best trainings out there on just dealing with the financial aspect and really helping couples and understanding a very deep dive in attachment theory and really important stuff. I have your book, The Healthy Love and Money Way: How the Four Attachment Styles Sorry, there it is. Impact your financial
1: well being. Yeah. Impact
0: your financial well being. Thank you, and that's on that can be found on Amazon, many other places. And then I also cited Stan Tatkin, who is the PACT Institute, which I think is amazing also, just the emotional regulation and attachment theory that he's done a lot of research on and I'm sure people will enjoy. He's a very entertaining speaker. Is there any other resources that you wanted to point us towards?
1: Yeah. If, if I sound like the right person for you, you can also find me at healthyloveandmoney.com. I Thank you for I take an integrated approach. My primary role with couples now is around as a fee-only financial planner, so I have no incentive to sell any products. It's just advice and guidance, but I fold in therapeutic practices and concepts as we work.
0: And um, you are located in what state currently? Like,
1: I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I work with uh, couples around the country.
0: So you do digital?
1: It's all virtual, so I can meet Amazing. with couples around the country. Yeah. And if you need a good couples therapist, obviously what you're doing is wonderful. Connect with your community of folks. Stay intact and have the whole community of of people that he's helped train.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, John Gottman is another name. I don't want to overwhelm people, but we can put this in the show notes.
0: Sure. What
1: what I would say is if you're looking for a really good couples therapist, interview the therapist you're trying to. Ask them about how much couples specific training they've gone through.
0: That's a great question. Thank you for saying that. I agree with you a thousand percent.
1: Because if doing couples therapy is a particular set of skills and knowledge different than individual therapy. And so you want someone that's really dedicated and focused themselves on the practice of couples therapy.
0: Amazing. Awesome. So I got Ed's website, healthyloveandmoney.com. We have the Gottman Institute, which is Gottman.com. And thank you so much, Ed, for this. this has really been so helpful and I know how passionate you are about marriage and family therapy and financial uh, success. So I thank you so much for joining us today. And I really appreciate your contributions.
1: Thank you so much, Joseph. Appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for the work you're doing.
0: You're very welcome. and looking forward to collaborating again in the future. Indeed. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Jewish Trauma Network. For additional resources, free and premium courses, leave questions or suggestions, or to support our mission, please visit jewishtrauma.com. And always remember, your life can and will be better.